This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name, Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. We're in Exodus chapter 3. We started last week. If you weren't here uh, to hear Exodus 1 and 2, it's available, it's recorded, it's on our website, and you can actually get that as a podcast if you'd like to catch up with the sermons, and sometimes it's good to listen to it again as well. But today I want to begin in our exploration of Exodus 3, page 47, by asking you what's in a name. Page 44, I'm told. What's in a name? That's a famous and old question, which of course you'll recognise from... Anyone? From Romeo and Juliet, of course, this was Juliet's question. And Juliet, of course, thought that very little was in a name, since... In her view, a, a rose could be called manure and still smell like a rose. That was her logic. But Juliet was, was wrong, as the play shows. Names are extraordinarily powerful things. And for Romeo and Juliet, their names, Montague and Capulet, the families to which they belonged, suggested particular relationships and loyalties that in the end they couldn't overcome, they couldn't break through. You see, a name is who you are and how you are recognised, how you are identified. You are known by your name, and your name often says things about you. From your name, I can have a good guess at your gender, your ethnic background, and even your age, all without even seeing your face. We might say, then, that a name is about belonging and about reputation. That's what we mean by having a name. If you bear a particular name, it means you belong to a particular set of relationships, a particular family, and then you have the reputation that goes with that name. In modern advertising parlance, we call it a brand, which is really just the way of saying name. Now, being the son of the former Archbishop of Sydney, I bear a name that associates me with my father. And when I introduce myself... As a Jensen, people's reactions to me, if they know about my father, will at first depend on what their opinion of my father is, which varies. <laughs> but what about God? What is God's name? Now, we've become used to using the word God as the name of God because for centuries in English, there was only one God, the God of Jesus Christ, that it could mean. But there are many gods. God is not, you see, a name. It's a category. To call someone God is a bit like calling them man or woman or child or dog. Which God do we mean when we say God, when we speak to and of God? Is it Odin, Thor, Horus, Marduk, Zeus, Tiamat, Vishnu, Krishna, Allah? Is the God we worship the same as any of these? 
They all have vastly different characters and have done vastly different things and have vastly different stories, often in conflict. If we are to know the one we call God then, if we are to worship him and serve him as he really is, we need to know his name. We need to know how to call him. But this is a problem perhaps because who can name God? Who can offer God a name? How can we mere mortal and imperfect human beings peer into the sky and conjure up a name for the almighty God? How dare we? What arrogance would that be? No, not at all. Rather, we need God to introduce himself. We need to know the name that he calls himself by. And this is where we pick up the story of Moses. By the miracle we heard last week, a Jew, a Hebrew, who was also the, the adopted child of, an, of an, the Egyptian pharaoh. He was an Egyptian prince. Pharaoh had the Hebrews, as we know, slaving for him in the hot sun and was determined to reduce their numbers by killing their little boys. And so the Hebrews cried out to the God of their ancestors. By now, Moses who was in exile because he'd killed an Egyptian and was, who was beating up a Hebrew, uh, had gone and got married and was working as a shepherd, a bit of a prophecy of what he would later do with his people, uh, working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. And he'd taken his sheep one day to a place called Horeb, which we also know as a place called Sinai. And there he came across something which was weird. It was a bush. That was on fire. Well, that's not unusual, as we know, but when he looked at it further, Moses saw that this bush was burning, but not burning up, that it was ablaze, but not being turned into ash. In Australia, we know what a destructive and terrifying force fire can be. I've never forgotten the bushfires of 1994. A friend of mine living in the Sydney suburb of Janali, down in the Shire, had her family home burned to the ground in that fire. Everything that the family owned was consumed in the flames. My friend Justin once took me to see a power station that his father had helped build past Lithgow. And I don't know if you've ever been to a power station, but a power station is essentially an enormous fire. And I remember going on this tour of the power station and standing next to this huge furnace and seeing the lines of coal trucks extending down the road waiting to deliver the tons and tons of coal that would be fed into this, this extraordinary fire hour by hour. And you could go up to the furnace and there was a window through which you could see the flames. You could actually open the window, there was some distance through the concrete walls, into the flames, and you could feel... You could see the bright white light and you could feel a slight suction coming in and I had a, a tissue in my pocket. I pulled it out and I held it near the window, that open window, and it was sucked in and it, it just disappeared. It did not even catch fire. It just was consumed by the flames. Fire is dynamic. It consumes everything in its path. It's dynamic and let's face, it, it's, it, let's face it, it's also dangerous. And this is the God of the Bible too. He is a flame of power and purity. 
the letter of the Hebrews in the New Testament says, Our God is a consuming fire. This was the fire that burned up the sacrifice on Mount Carmel that Elijah offered. This was the raging fire of God's holiness, the unending fire of his judgment. It's a fierce flame, this fire, the fire who is God. And if we're honest, it's a terrifying thought. If our God is a consuming fire, how can you and I not then be consumed? Should we not, like Moses, hide our faces from the flames? But the fire rests on this bush and does not consume it. It blazes on it, but does not burn it. And this is a sign of what Moses is about to learn. Because the Lord God, the fire, has chosen to be present in and amongst his people, to be their God and to lead them out of Egypt. He will live on them as fire, not to destroy them, but to cleanse them and to save them. And the voice of the that comes from the bush, the voice of the fire, tells Moses who he is in verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What kind of name is this? What does this tell Moses? Well, it tells him that this God has a particular history. This God is the one who made a covenant, an agreement, made promises to Abraham, his ancestor, years and years ago who had made the promise to put his people Israel in the promised land, to breed them and to bless them. This was the the God who wanted a relationship with people, to live with them and for them to live with him. He wanted them to bear his name. One way we identify people is by what they have done, isn't it? If I were to say the name Ted Bundy or Adolf Hitler, or the name Mother Teresa. Well, you'd, know, you'd be able to identify them as people who'd done particular and very different things. This God is to be known by the things he has done, his history with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he makes now a dramatic announcement. He says to Moses, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The flaming fire has come not to destroy, but to save. Now Moses asks two questions, and you've got to like Moses for the way in which he he does kind of have a conversation with God. He he doesn't leave his questions unanswered. He's a bit perky that way, though he's full of fears in other ways. He's an interesting character because he carries on these conversations with God. And the first question he says is a pretty obvious one. He says, look, who am I to take on Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world? And he's racked with a justified self-doubt. How can Moses, the vagabond shepherd living in exile, ever hope to overthrow Pharaoh? 
How could he even gather an army from this slave people who are sweating under the hot sun, whose children have been killed? And the answer is this. God says to him, I will be with you. That's the promise of God to his people down the ages. And it's a promise that Jesus makes to his followers too. You and I are called as Christians to stand against the powers that dominate our world and deny the true God and his name. Sometimes the Christian life is daunting. As the call of God was daunting to Moses, or at least it should be daunting if we're doing it properly. I often feel as I wake up in the morning, how could I ever do this? How can I ever carry on? I, I know what the odds are. I know the census statistics. I know which way the wind is blowing. I know how hard the hearts of people are. Who am I, Lord, in all my brokenness and wretchedness and weakness and inadequacy, that I should stand for you in times such as these? But the tongue of flame descended upon the apostles, just as Jesus promised. God is present with us, in us, by the fire of his Holy Spirit, cleansing us, saving us, and empowering us to belong to Jesus Christ is to have the holy fire of God living in you, not consuming you, but giving you his power. Moses was surely meant to see himself and his people in that spindly bush. You know, it's, it's a bush, it's not a tree. It's not even a very impressive plant. But it blazes brightly with the presence of God. It is a glow with God's radiance. And that's you and me, spindly bushes that we are. If you've received Christ, then the spirit of the living God rests on your body in all its weakness and sinfulness. It rests on you whatever you know yourself to be, and you are ablaze with God's presence. Who are you then that you might challenge a Pharaoh? The living God is with you. That's who. And then Moses asks the second question. Firstly, how can I? Well, God is with you, says God. The second question is this. It's the question about the name. I'm going to go down to my people. Uh, do I just say to them, you know, some God, some, some force, some vague thing told me this? What name will I use? I had the good fortune to spend Friday morning talking to a rabbi in the cafe down at uh, Speedos, down at Bondi Beach, uh, learning about the special name of God. Because I know this passage is extremely precious uh, to, to, to the Jews uh, in Judaism. It's extraordinarily significant. And he told me that there are basically three words for God in Hebrew. Uh, there's the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master, and that's a title. It's God's title. He's our Lord, Adonai. And then there's Elohim, which is like our word God. And so when we hear of the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's the Elohim of. But then there's this special name 
that Moses learns here. This precious, special, unique, particular name. Sometimes in English, we transliterate it Jehovah. You may have heard the word Jehovah or Yahweh. That's saying it, that Hebrew word aloud, Yahweh. But our text is translated for us in capitals, just so we know how significant it is. I am who I am. Because of the way Hebrew works, it also could be, I will be who I will be. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. What does this curious name mean? What does it signify? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It's a statement of complete independence, isn't it? Of extraordinary freedom. He is not who we determine him to be. He is not who anyone says he will be. He is not a creation of our vivid imaginations. I often hear people say, look, I like to think of God as... And then they make some statement about a God that suits them. But when we say this sort of thing, I like to think of God as, we are in the realm of idolatry. And what's even worse than that, we are speaking falsely. It's not worth worshipping a God who you invent out of your own preferences, who is really just you, projected on a large screen. This is the narcissism of our current culture, isn't it, that promotes this as a virtue. But it's dangerously false. The true God, if he's any kind of God, is not shaped by us, but self-defined, defined only by himself. He is who he is. It sounds silly when human beings say this, of course. Which of us could say this? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. We only imagine that we have such freedom. And there's actually something tragic about us when we do this, when we, we make our attempts to make a name for ourselves. Our names carry the weight of another's actions or are tainted by our own. We intend to be something. We make our plans and our New Year's resolutions. How many have you broken already? But we find things turning out in ways we hadn't intended. We find ourselves being someone who we didn't intend to be. We can will to be, but we will not be what we will to be. But Yahweh, the Lord God, will be who he will be. And he gives us his name. He shares with us his name. And who does he choose to be? Who will he be? As a husband traditionally gives his wife his name, in his complete independence from anyone, God gives his people his name. He says, I am and I choose to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I choose to be the God of Israel, and I choose to be the God of Jesus Christ and those who follow him. He is not the God that they made up, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like some tribal deity carved out of stone or wood. He is theirs because he chooses that name. And what will he be? 
He will be the one who brings Israel up out of slavery and places them, places them in the land flowing with milk and honey. And he will be the one who chooses to take on human flesh itself, to live among us, and even to die upon a cross. Who will Yahweh be? The cross of Jesus Christ is our answer. And this extraordinary name tells us this, that the Lord God, Yahweh, the great I Am, must burn with love. The fuel that keeps Yahweh ablaze, the heat is pure love. God will be who he will be as the one who redeems you because of his love. For God, Yahweh, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What you and I have from this part of the Bible is very precious indeed. We have the personal name of God. And more than that, he gives us his name to bear as our own. We wear his badge. You don't have to make a name for yourself. He has given you his name, a name that is above every name. You belong in Jesus, in his family. And so his reputation is your reputation. His glory is your glory. And that's why when you were baptized, when we baptize people, we baptize them, we baptized you into God's name, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We baptized you into a name because we were saying at that moment that by God's Spirit, you were becoming part of his family. You are now bearing his name, not your own anymore, not a name that you choose, not a name that you desire for yourself, not a name that you earn, but the name that God gives you, the name which saves you and makes you one of his. And so really, our response to him should be to worship him. To worship him. We pray then. We speak to him. Not as the pagans do, not saying, God, if you're up there, God, whoever you might be, if there's some force out there listening now, but we pray to the one whose name we know because he's made his name known to us and given it to us. We glorify him, not in order to pacify his moodiness or to turn aside his violence, but because he is aflame with love. We praise him, not as a distant Lord in a far-off palace, inaccessible to all, but as the one whose living spirit lives in us today. And so what we need to do, knowing now that this spirit of the living God lives in you, his fire is ablaze in you, is to kindle our own love for Yahweh. We can do this by practicing being in his presence, by opening his word and listening 
to the Spirit speaking to us by focusing daily on him, day by day, by engaging with him in his creation and seeing his glory in it, his extraordinary power and might and grace and kindness in it, by putting to death the sin in our lives and walking forward to do the things he has called us to for his name's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.